Today, we talk with Suchitra Vajayan and Francesca Reccia about their new book, How Long Can the Moon Be Caged? A collection of powerful testimonies from political prisoners in India that are prefaced by a comprehensive set of background essays explaining the nature and the history of the political repression in India. We are joined, too, by Professor Anantel Tumde, the eminent Dalit scholar, activist, and prolific writer who in November was released on bail from over two years of political incarceration. How Long Can the Moon Be Caged? This is a truly remarkable book in so many different ways. It contains a vast amount of historical information and also contemporary information that helps us understand exactly the nature of political protest and punishment in India. And it contains as its centerpiece a remarkable set of documents created by political prisoners that exhibits their courage, creativity, and their persistence Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. Welcome and thank you all for being here. I was thinking that before we get into the discussion of the book, which is the primary focus of today's discussion, it would be important for our audience to know something about the Polis Project because the book emerges out of a larger project that has been in existence for some time now. Thank you, David. The Polis Project is a New York-based hybrid research and journalism organization, and we work with what we call as the communities in resistance. This idea comes from the core belief that what happens in Palestine and Ferguson and Kashmir and Rojava, these communities in resistance have more to learn from each other. And it's important for us to think through these communities in a very sophisticated way. We do this through three things that are core to the organization, which is research, reportage, and resistance. We publish critical ideas that are excluded from the mainstream. Our work sheds light on authoritarianism, especially in democracies. And we focus on issues of race, class, caste injustice, Islamophobia, and very specifically state oppression around the world. We pride ourselves at publishing fearless journalism, especially in India and larger South Asia. Do you tell us about the genesis of this book? The book is the result of a long research process. We started working on the book about two and a half, three years ago. And the initial idea started as the Polish project. When we were approached by Imara, a small arts collective based in Bangalore, who had self-published a booklet with an update on the BK-16 and their writing. We started publishing those excerpts and then that series became what is now known as Profiles of Descent that became a community effort where people started approaching us asking whether they could contribute with profiles of other political prisoners. What we have now is about 27 profiles which made us realize that it was an important body of work that needed further study, further research and also a wider and more solid platform for um, amplification. Initially, we thought that the book will only be a sort of an anthology of prison writings with a small or like a marginal commentary. And then, as we often say, things that start in one way become something else. And we soon realized that also this would not be fully adequate as a way to do justice to the amazing amount of work that we had collected. And then from there, the book became what it is now through a number of different iterations and a complex set of exchanges and processes. This book was also our way of responding to what was happening on the ground. It was really our way to document and archive. And that's what Polis has been doing, that we would be that organization that would meticulously organize and really analyze what was happening. Because Siddhi Kapan, one of the other journalists who was arrested, one of the political prisoners in India, was also arrested on the way to report on the gruesome murder of this young woman in Hathras. As soon as he was released, said something very profound. He said that memory is the only way for us to fight against fascism. So for us, the idea of documenting all of this and creating a footnote was absolutely important. And much before we started working, Working on the profiles of dissent, one of the things that Polis has done and done incredibly well is really just make sure that we are listening, we are bearing witness, but we're also creating some kind of an analytical and methodological framework to do this so that this work also is something that the community can tomorrow rely on. And we started doing this around 2017-18, just around the time when we have the first of the Bima Koregao um, arrests happen. 
AK-16, as they are now known to the world, is a group of some of India's finest lawyers, thinkers, writers, activists, all of them arrested around an incident that happens at this place called Bhima Koregaon the day after the Elga Parishad conference. And this is very important for us to understand is that Elga Parishad was this remarkable conference that brings together various left Dalit and other organizers and activists on the ground together, where they say that they will no longer vote for the BJP, but also fight against what they call the Peshwa Ilu. The next day, violence breaks out, often created and incited by rabid right-wing forces. And like in all of the cases, the men who incite the violence walk free, while the act of violence itself is used as the locus to arrest some of India's finest thinkers, writers, scholars, actors on the ground. And this series of arrests begins and happens over a few years. And what you really see is that all of these intellectuals are accused of uh, trying to plan to assassinate the prime minister. There is no evidence or the evidence that is presented as proof of this plan is either manufactured or in some cases, we now know that through Pegasus and other surveillance agencies, these evidences were planted. But what you really have is manufacturing evidence. There was no crime. And yet some incredibly remarkable people on the ground, writing, thinking, arguing, fighting against the state, become incarcerated. Some of them have been released on bail and many others continue to spend time in prison. When we had first planned doing this episode in June, we thought it would be perfect timing because it was against the background of this spectacle of bromance between Modi and Biden on Modi's state visit to the U.S. We were thwarted by another carceral institution, David getting called to jury duty, unfortunately. But we figured quite rightly that in a fascistic state like India, there are perpetually crises being generated that would make analysis of this book timely and relevant. And in fact, now we are once again seeing in the news exposure of India's alleged role in the extrajudicial assassination of a Sikh activist in Canada, the response to which is being used now in Canada to drum up support for a bill officially condemning Hinduphobia, which is Dalit and Adivasi activists point out, will be a facade for silencing criticism of Brahminism and fascism. Less internationally publicized, we also seen in recent days the stripping and beating and being forced to drink urine of a Dalit woman by a moneylender, the lynching of a disabled Muslim man outside a temple in India, and of course, the ongoing appropriation of Adivasi lands, including increasingly for projects, ecology, conservation, and green energy. Professor Teltumde, your work has been so vital in dissecting the way that all of the structural violences of the Hindutva state continue to be reproduced. Can you talk a bit about the background context for how we understand increasing use of political incarceration by the Indian state as perhaps a necessary condition of being a neoliberal fascist state? In other words, does neoliberal fascism require mass political incarceration? Let me personally congratulate Chujitra and Francisca for bringing in a documentation because this is very important there. Unfortunately, some of the audio for Dr. Teltumde's remarks did not come out clearly. He has done us the kindness of providing a transcript of his comments, which can now be found on the Speaking Out of Place website under the Blogs and News tab. The address for the website is speakingoutofplace, all one word, dot com. As one Milan Kundera said, the struggle of people against power and the struggle of memory against forgetting. So this is particularly important in that context. What is going on in India is probably not understood in full measure by many people outside, but only the victims get to know what it is. India is at the crossroads, probably it has crossed the crossroads, and it is on the verge of actually becoming something like what they call as Indurastra. Indurastra is not just a name change, but it's actually, in essence, change of everything that India stood for. Purely a fascist totalitarian state. As such, again, it would be an understatement because all over the world, these kind of tendencies are seen. But this is a qualitatively different kind. That is what is happening in India. You know, we said about the current episode about Canada and all that. What is happening inside India is actually depicted in Manipur. There are so many things are going on and we cannot even 
keep pace with. People are bringing in issues every day so that the past things are forgotten by the people and the opposition is invisible. Although they have grouped together as India, which BJP smartly reduced it to Indy, whatever it is, but even BJP opposition combined do not seem to have any strategic clue. They're still getting dragged by Modi along the way. Take a case of recent one, the women's innovation that bill is passed in the parliament. It was not passed up till now because of many kinds of unvalued objections at that. Some of the opposition parties actually maintained that there should be reservation for OBC women, which is not there because if the generic kind of reservation is brought in, then all the upper caste might grab each and all. That was their contention. But this time, when they called them united opposition to BJP, they could not make their point effectively and rather opted for voting for it. And the bill was passed almost unanimous. One would expect that the opposition would learn and get their act together if the 24 elections are some way won by BJP and the same bunch of people come into power. One shudders to imagine what would happen in India. So this is the kind of thing that we actually are watching here. I actually had three questions, but I'm going to put them all together in as one because they, for me, show the formidable forces that you're up against. One is the media. The other one is neoliberal capital. And the third is the way that the state has captured the courts. And you talk about all three in your book. You're battling against the fabrications of a state controls the media, and they've effectively neutralized the courts. So you have both the media and the courts. But then also you have this horrible convergence between capitalist developers and the state. So you have what in your book you call legalized plunder. Could you talk about this powerful triad, as it were, and how the stories that you're able to bring to us address these in different ways? You may have to go back to Modi's Gujarati years, other things aside, but the way he actually gave free hand to capital. And that is the process by which actually he fell to the global capital and became their preferred choice. So he actually makes it totally open. All the state gets open to the certain set of capitalists. Mukesh Amiradani is a very upcoming business group. And another one is Ambani. Both happen to be Gujaratis from his own state and have grown like anything during post-14. Even before that, they have been growing in Gujarat. But even if you take uh, post-14 figures, something like Ambani grew 118% during the five years of his Modi's role. And the Adani grew 121%. Another one, and it grew by 143%. So such is the growth of Tony capitalists out here. And even other capital and big capitalists have been very happy with Modi because he actually I mean, gives them free hand all the jungles which are inhabited by Adivasi. And the basic struggle is at that, are freed for the plunder. This is the way it's going on. There is a big nexus between capitalists and there is a big money growing through to the BJP coffers, which cannot be beaten by anyone in opposition, etc. They brought in election bonds, so-called, which actually flows to the bank and it is invisible, meaning that people do not have access to how much money is flowing to which party and all that. So this is the conduit of heaven from the state, which is channeled to the corporates. These are the known sources, but there could be n number of unknown sources, which would not be known to any anyone for that matter. So this is the kind of things which are going on. And that however you actually speak rationally, they just ignore you. And that has not been for like last nine years. Modi hasn't actually taken a question from a people and he claims that he is representing 140 crores, 1.4 billion people of India. That is what it is. I think what Dr. Teltumde said was absolutely on point. To understand Modi's India today, you really have to go back to understand how this nexus between the capital cronism comes together. The Gujarat model essentially was this explosive mix of a perpetually using state violence to silence the Muslim population and others. Alongside you have crony capitalism, which is often projected as facade. There's actually an excellent book by journalist Raj Shekhar called Despite the State, where he systematically looks at how the state's infrastructure is corroded by Modi's rule in Gujarat, where the state then becomes 
single-handedly responsible for performing violence and performing this job of being an intermediary furthering the interest of big capital. But along with it, what you also see is the way in which the legal system is consistently eroded and captured. The capture happens in many ways. One, what you really see is that you are entrenching certain kind of impunity within the legal system. That happens through the creation of NIA, an infrastructure of laws that come into place while Ye has been in function for a really long time. You also have various other amendments to UAPA that makes criminalization of dissent very easy. In 2019, when they come back to power, the UAPA is again amended where an individual can be unilaterally designated as a terrorist and without any proof evidence. And then that individual would then have to spend the rest of their life trying to prove that they are not, which means that you've very quickly reversed the burden of truth. Before these terror laws had something called the sunset clause, which meant that they had to go back to the courts to ask if this incarceration was valid. That was done away with. So bail has become almost impossible. Second, with the national security infrastructure, national security becomes the holy cow. India's national security infrastructure, which is in the name of fighting terror, the amount of money spent on this infrastructure is just keeps increasing year by year. In the book, we cite this example of how in 2000, the budget for this NIA and so-called counterinsurgency organizations were increased by 16%. And the Indian national security infrastructure is one of the few infrastructures in the world who is not liable or accountable to anyone which means that an organization built to fight the terrorists or the national security threats really are then turned around and gunned against the very citizens of the state who are not even, who are not, I'm not even going to talk about people who are protesting, which is their right, but in simply existing and wanting to exercise their citizenship right. You have a large infrastructure and a machinery of impunity in place. And then the media then comes in and consistently now repeats the state's version. The courts, the institutions, the media, everybody becomes the stenographer of the state, which means that we really do not know what is truth, what is false. When COVID happened, dead bodies no longer was proof of death, which meant that every reality is taken away. And this is pretty much what they've done, and they've done it consistently over a long period of time. Yeah, I think that's structural to the work that the Police Project does is look at how episodes of violence in the current state of India are not episodic any longer. What we do is to look at patterns of violence to make sure that we understand how things have become systematic. So one thing that is important to highlight here is how all the institutions of the state are complicit in activating a system of impunity, as Richard said. So it's not just one single institution or one of the pillars of the state. It's everyone who has to be complicit for this project of nationalism to be actualized. So while the courts sanction what the political design is, the police implements the violence that the state and the courts sanction, and the media simply amplifies the official version of the truth. And the official version of the truth is no longer based on facts, because as Suchitra earlier mentioned, facts are no longer needed to create a political narrative that is bought, sold, multiplied and perpetuated into a political project. So I think the complexity of the situation here is that there's hardly any element within the state apparatus dissonant to the state due to a project that Modi is pushing forward. And you point to this growth and intensification of counterterrorism apparatuses. And we know globally, a hallmark of these types of apparatuses reflected very strongly in your book is the sheer absurdity of the accusations, the legal processes that are leveled against those who are ensnared within them. Many of the instances that you document in your book really remind me of the philosopher Harry Frankfurt's theorization, highly philosophical theorization of the philosophical concept of bullshit, in which he argues that while lies are actually in some ways respectful of the truth because they seek to counter the truth, bullshit by simply putting things out regardless of any relationship to truth or not is actually far more damaging to the truth because it makes the truth simply not matter at all. And so can you talk a bit about what the political function is of this legally institutionalized and media institutionalized, politically institutionalized bullshit that we're seeing as a very central part of the Modi regime? We have a chapter in the book that is titled The Lies Factory. 
One of the things that we start the chapter with is the declaration that was issued under oath in December 2002 by Subdivisional Police Officer Ganesh Moa. He said that he had not come across any material that showed evidence, and he was the investigating officer, that he did not come across any material that showed evidence that those accused of the violence at Bima Corregan, that is the BK-16, were in fact responsible of the violence. So the, investi- the former investigating officer publicly said that there is no evidence of the, those accused being the perpetrators of the violence. Now, in any functioning democracy, a statement of this sort will create at least the government to collapse. This will be the least that could happen. In India, nothing happened. So there were whispers in small circles that obviously pointed to the absurdity, as you said, of the bullshit on which an entire court case has been built. But there was no further consequence. This is just one of the examples that we present in the book. And this is just to say that the bullshit that you quoted have become the grounding force to incarcerate any dissenting voice. Because as we said earlier, truth is no longer relevant or is no longer the ground on which discussions happen. And there's no real space left for contestation because, as we said, the courts have been co-opted, the media has been co-opted. So there is no one really, except for some pockets of civil society and the intellectuals who are in jail, to counter the bullshit. This reminds me of what happened in the United States after 9-11. And I wrote an article about the hijacking of the imagination, where everything could be excused on the pretext that it was a preemptive move against terrorism. And therefore, you found terrorism wherever you want to find it. So I wanted to ask you about this Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, another kind of preemptive tool that could find things to prevent wherever you might want to find it. Could you talk a little bit about this? Because one thing I find so valuable about your book is it's a counter, it's a response to this kind of negative, destructive, violent use of the imagination toward a more creative, liberatory use of the imagination, which we'll get to later on in the broadcast. But can you talk about this? And it was 2004, I believe, the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act. So the UAP has been around for quite some time. It predates the 2004 as well. But I think what's really important is that I think since you flagged 9-11 and that moment, we really have to go to that moment where 9-11 happens. And Atul Bihari Vajpayee, also from the BJP, is Indian Prime Minister. And Vajpayee says that every Indian is now part of the global war on terror. And he said, we will stamp out evil from our land and from the world. And of course, this is like this dog whistle to say that we're coming after. And the time quickly after this also saw the picking up of young Muslim boys around in Delhi, in Hyderabad. Scholars like Jini Lokanita has done incredible job documenting this. But the war on terror in the United States the Patriot Act was also replicated in India as POTA, which pretty much was a cut copy based of the Patriot Act, which was put in. Of course, POTA was then repealed, but every time the draconian, unlawful, unconstitutional, inhuman law is put into place in the name of fighting terror or national security, often directed against Muslims, Adivasi communities, historically, these then get repealed or cancelled. Something happens and on the textbook, on the books of law, they get removed. But the provisions somehow are bought back through other legislations. While POTA itself no longer exists, some of the provisions of POTA continue to live and breathe through other legislation. So EPA similarly has a much longer history and it, it goes back much before 2004. But what you've really seen since 2004 with the Unlawful Prevention Act is really if you had a larger circle that said this is a crime and this is how we are going to prosecute or persecute people who could be national security threat, that circle has just grown larger and larger. The burden of truth is increasingly reversed. So UAPA is among the one of the many laws that are part of regimes of impunity that were put in place. One of the examples is that initially one of the arguments that was made is that just because you support an organization, a banned organization or the ideology that automatically does not make you a criminal. But in many of these cases, especially for instance, the GN Cyberbus case was one of the first cases that we discussed. We have no evidence except his bookshelf essentially becomes evidence of sedition. How is it that in a, in a country which is democratic, where you have the rule of law, a judge in violation of so many laws of evidence, so many existing laws, continues to send a professor to jail 
without any evidence. And of course, since the Modi government has come to into power, the UAPA was amended again in 2019. That's when they unilaterally designated people. And now there's another law commission. There's a law commission a discussion that was issued in which they want to further criminalize dissent. Now that they've actually made pot crime, the law commission is actually recommending that now even thinking about something could potentially make you a terrorist. So that is the much, of course, there are a lot more nuances to it. But what you really we have to understand is that there are a series of laws that create regimes of impunity along with the complicity of the various courts that go on to produce judgments that are illegal, unconstitutional and inhuman. Professor Tiltumde, could you talk about the colonial genealogy behind this illegal infrastructure? We know that the concept of quote unquote terrorism itself was forged not simply as a response to 9-11, but in the crucibles of counterinsurgencies against anti-colonial resistance, including in India, as well as other sites of brutal colonial practices, such as Kenya. In the book, Suchitra and Francesca quote Dalit analysts pointing out that from a certain perspective, all prisoners in India should be considered political prisoners because the penal infrastructure is itself a political colonial legacy. And you've also written in your work about how the Indian constitution ended up reproducing and perpetuating a lot of this by effectively importing three quarters of the old colonial constitution into its post-colonial constitution. Can you talk a bit about how we need to understand this from a longer colonial perspective and what the implications of that are for how we engage in resistance and opposition to it? Recently, I heard that someone has written a book called Colonial Constitution. I would not go that far to call the Constitution as a colonial, but in this particular context, why India has reached this kind of stage, we can actually trace through the Constitution making. Constitution basically, which is actually praised by all over the world as a very good constitution, very egalitarian constitution, complicit constitution, transformative constitution, etc. All these elements are there, but in essence, the anti-people character of the constitution actually is kept intact and it is drawn from the colonial thing. Colonial constitution, when the last one was by India Act 1935, was a proven instrument for a colonial exploitation of people. They have essentially borrowed the same structure and put in certain things which gave an impression to the people that it was good. What was actually put in something like an extra goodness in the constitution which people identify with were the fundamental rights that were given to the people, chapter 3, and the directive principles of state policies by chapter 4. These were the kinds of extra that were put in. Otherwise, more than two-thirds of the constitution in the India Act 1935. This is in the constitutional term, but apart from that, the entire state apparatus was actually borrowed from the colonial. Same people, same structure, same everything, the same processes actually remained. It was very difficult to expect that these kind of people in India, they would, namely, I problematize two kinds of entered into constitution. One is something like what today, what whatever is going on today. By more, this could have been uh, avoided if the constitution had two crucial kinds of things, secularism and the abolition of caste. And both the things have been actually dodged. India is taken as a secular country, but there is no mention of secular word in the constitution. They have provided an alibi that India was a very religious kind of country, etc. And that kind of concept of secularism probably cannot be implemented. That means that they think true secularism would be something like a firewall between religion and politics. So that cannot be implemented, etc. None other than the Nehru actually adopted it. And caste was kept alive, although they celebrated the outlawed untouchability. With all Hindu reformers, right? and, and Gandhi perhaps is the best example, actually spoke against untouchability, but not against caste. They wanted caste, but, un but it can be logically seen that untouchability was just an aspect of the caste. And if being caste survives, the untouchability could not go away. But they actually kept it with an alibi. The downtrodden people, something like a low caste people, etc., is to be extended reservations, social justice, so-called. And that reservation became, in course of time, a weapon, big weapon. I'm not going into detail, but this kind of argument actually I have made in my, some of the books. If these 
two things had been plugged at the time of the constitution making, probably we would not have seen such kind of menace. There were some other things also, like the kind of public policies that Nehru followed to create something like a class of rich farmers in the rural areas where they had a very tenuous control. Even Congress party had a very tenuous control and through which Actually, they created a class of rich farmers, which again further denuded the Dalits out there. The crux of the matter, when it comes to the Hindutva and all, in many circumferential ways, you, one can see that basically the caste project. One could see from the specs of the caste, I would not be so much obsessive about the caste as such, because I hate that. But one could see it from the specs of the caste, and it could be many things actually called in life. Why do they hate Muslims? Muslims, because most of them actually come from the Dalit stock. And Dalit and the lower OBC kind of state, artisanal class. Because of that, they had a grudge right from the beginning when the colonialism had come and the traditional ruling classes is to be seen in, the, in terms of caste. They started seeing that British are now going to stay in India. Now they have an opportunity to avenge the humiliation that they suffered during the Muslim coup. And that way it actually started coming in. Few more things like I would problematize again in the constitution term something like adoption of first by the post kind of election system, which is singularly unsuitable <coughs> for the Indian polity. And another thing was something like, yeah, good. I think that I have spoken about the directives principle of state policies where all the things have been listed. All these principles are not enforceable by any court of law. You cannot go to court and say that this is what is written in the constitution or directed chapter 4 and that's why this needs to be done. It is just a way kind of direction given to the state and right from the beginning state has been ignoring them with impunity. Only one clause which is the cow clause which actually is exploited by DJP to the hint has been Right from the Congress rule, then followed. It has been going on. This process can be seen. Sorry, whatever what is happening. Protection of a cow. Protection of cow. Protection of cow. Yes. Article 45 or whatever. So there is a clause in directive principles that cow, these animals, etc. are to be protected. So they have brought in laws, etc. against the cow slaughter. And that has been religiously being implemented. And this has created a menace during the thing. This has been one of the instruments in, under Modi, the gangs harassing the Muslims. A lot of Muslims were lynched because of this cow clause. We, one can see in effect that process is going on right from the beginning, right from the constitution making to this thing. This is just a culmination. In nutshell, I would say in one single sentence that whatever Modi is doing today has been done by Congress in some measure. Actually, he's stretching it to the extreme. That is what is happening. There has been a precedent for everything that Modi is doing today. And even you can see in the behavior of the opposition, again, one is sorry to say such things at the juncture because one is expecting that in the coming election, the fellows have to go. And somewhere one hopes that the opposition will behave. But you can mark that the opposition has not been opposing any of the major Hindutva stand, as a matter of fact, for whatever reason, in recent times after the book is published, no incidents have happened you know, in Haryana. They have bulldozed the houses of Muslims, etc. And these people have not uttered a single word in favor of Muslims. In the history of the last decade, opposition has no, no opposition party has actually uttered a single word about Muslims. They are fearful that the majority of in the world would be lost if they actually take a stand for Muslims. With the case with Hindutva, they, there is a, something like a competition among the Congress people to show that how they are better Hindu than the BJP. They say that we, our Hinduness is a better Hindutva than the BJP's. That kind of stand is not going to be. Th that's what I said that the, they are following a Talit strategy. That's the misfortune of the country. Right from the beginning, this is this actually France is the biggest democracy in the world. There has not been real opposition party born in India. This is what I think and there is not much to say, but this is what actually depicts the picture as I see. Yeah. I think the structural continuities also really show the disingenuousness of Hindutva's current efforts to represent itself as a decolonization project 
in resonance with other indigenous struggles against colonialism. A while ago, hearing Noura Arakat speak about how in Palestine, prison has lost its stigmatizing function because the political imprisonment and administrative imprisonment of Palestinians is so widespread and its illegitimacy is so well understood that far from being a marker of disrepute, imprisonment is now almost a mark of honor. Legal mm. theorists mm. remind us that the law's power derives in large part from not simply being a reflection of dominant relationships of power, but in preserving a sense of some kind of neutral arbitration or mediation between interests. And so I'm wondering, in the Indian context, where it's becoming increasingly apparent the fascistic and cronyistic nature of the state, has imprisonment similarly lost its stigmatizing and segregating function? I think this idea of incarceration as a mark of martyrdom is definitely a conversation that you sometimes see within the communities and especially with political prisoners themselves in your conversation. For instance, in the book, in the chapter where we reproduce letters from the prison, the lawyer Surendra Gardling writes a letter after one of the other political prisoners in India. She was very young. She was held under UAPA for seven years and then she passes away. So he writes a letter to his dead comrade saying, calling her a martyr and saying that you fought for the movement and this is the stripe that we have. So this is definitely a language that you see within the political prisoners community or those of them within the movement were talking about this. But I think India is definitely a community of shame and guilt, where shame and guilt and propriety and impropriety, purity and purity are still policing everyday conduct, which means that there is huge stigmatization of what it means to take people away the way they treat people. And I think that still exists. Perhaps as hopefully this doesn't happen, but assuming that if India goes the Israel way and if India has begun to replicate so much of what Israel does on the ground, that maybe in a few years, if this goes on, maybe then the larger society, perhaps that would happen. But right now, definitely this conversation is something you hear within the communities and resistance. But I don't know if that is something that's translated to the wider Indian public body. If I may add an anecdote, when we spoke to Saba Hussain, who's the partner, she's a writer and a researcher and a scholar, and she's the life partner of Gautam Navlaka. Part of the book is also a collection of material objects that are dear to either the political prisoners themselves or the families. So during the conversations in the past, before the book even took shape, but spoke about Gautam's passion for flowers. And then, so the anecdote that I want to recall is connected to the photo of the flowers that is in the book. And that's a story that Seba told us. And she told us that Gautam would go every other day or so to buy flowers to bring home. Then all of a sudden, Gautam was no longer there to buy flowers because he was taken away. And so she was really torn as to what story should she tell to the flower seller? The flower seller had great respect for her partner. And so she said, what am I going to tell this guy who's not going to see my partner for the time being from one day to the next? And then she realized that all she could say was the truth, that he was taken away because of his ideas and because of his political stance. And there was no shame to telling that truth. And she recalled that was for her a moment of great strength where she realized that there was no shame. It wasn't a bad thing because he had done nothing wrong, but stood for his own ideas. That's a great anecdote. Dr. Teltumbe, did you want to respond to the question? Is the political and therefore illegitimate nature of the incarceration appreciated widely? No, actually there is no category, officially there is no category like political prisoners. During the freedom struggle, etc. in the colonial era, there used to be all the people used to go to jail, marry me and stay there, political prisoners, and enjoy lots of pages. Today, the people who are incarcerated in the UAPA, etc., are just like terrorists, anti-nationalists, they are urban Nazis. All these things of terms have come up. And that's always, so they are perhaps worse than ordinary criminals because they are anti-nationalists, they are against states. So this is the way the, they are perceived. So there is not any dignity per se associated with that. In prisons, of course, the other prisoners would uh, respect people. They should respect us because we were uh, probably looking different, educated, we were helping others, etc. So we were respected by other prisoners. That would be assumed kind of thing, but officially, there is none. And then outside, the kind of propaganda, it's called a Godi media in India. Perhaps you understand by now what that Godi means. 
So there is Can a you huge... explain a bit about the meaning of, of Godi Media? Oh. It's a pun on play on words on Modi's name, right? Can you explain for the Godi Media only means just a lab. So there's a media on a lap of Modi something like and something like that subservient to Modi personally. That is why it is called Godi Media. Because the propaganda went against us outside. The outside world also was prejudiced. But by over the time, they yeah. realized perhaps what we what. There is no uh, incarceration is not dignified person within the country. More large number of people are seeing us as an ordinary business and is rather the blot. But brought out in the book, in the testimonies of the families, etc., what it means. So from that also, it gets reflected when there is nothing like sexual, something like a dignity that we have done something good that yeah. we have been arrested and all. That is not there. We, the people who are the victims, they, of course, fight without the courage and the dignity. So these are two separate things. Dignity lies within us, the support and the families and all those standards. See, they see us with a sort of respect. But among the general public or for the country, no, we are unified. Yes, we touch base again on the importance of the media and the way that it overwhelmingly saturates the general population with these images that are directed by the caricatures of the state. And I think you wonderfully bring out the importance of mutual respect amongst the opposition that provides a very real and tangible antidote to that. And in the book, you talk about how the state is most concerned about what you call transversal political allegiances. And I'd like to keep this discussion about mutual respect allegiances and specifically with regard to caste. And you talk about the Kabir Kalamansh, which is a working class Dalit cultural group. Could you talk about the work of this group in forming these kinds of allegiances from that particular positionality? Um, so Kabir Kalamansh is born soon after the Gujarat riots in 2002. As you said, it's mostly made of young working class Dalit activists who are really trying to make sense of the violence. The way they take their message is through street theater, music. And I think there, soon after Gujarat, you also have a series of violent incidences that happen against the Dalit community. There's the Ramabai Nagar massacre. There are multiple moments where you really see a kind of response, an emergence of the Dalit response to what does it mean for us to. And Shil Sate was one of the members of the Kabir Kalaman. She says that they really couldn't fathom the brutality of this massacre. And really, they wanted to understand and ask. There's a beautiful song with them that kind of translated in English where they say, who is this democracy for? Obviously, this democracy is not for us. Then who is this for? The idea is to ask simple questions about dignity and freedom and push for a certain kind of meaningful change. And they become incredibly popular within many of the working class communities and Dalit Pastis as they go and perform. And what really happens is that long before they're arrested as a part, because three members of the Kabir Kalamanch are now arrested as part of the BK-16. But long before BK-16, you really see a kind of criminalization of the work that they do consistently surveilled, they are followed. And then the then Congress government in Maharashtra kind of publishes a list of a public list of people that they think are enemies of the state and their names implicated. So what you really see is long before BK-16, there is a much longer history of persecution of this group. And one of the people that we talked to in the book, one of the Dalit activists who did not want their name to be cited, but was more than happy for us to cite what they say, is the idea that what is happening in India right now, the targeting of intellectuals, might be new for you, but it's not new for us. One of the things that they say is that the state has always had a boat in our neck. For us, the survival of all of this, the arrests of your intellectuals, your scholars, your thinkers, your human rights activists is new for you, but they've always come for us. And what you really see as they talk about their ideas, what is really clear is that the state is afraid of a cultural protest group made mostly of women and men, and they are popular because they speak to their communities. And within their communities, they become powerful catalysts of change. And again, in the book, we very clearly talk about when an artist becomes a terrorist. So there are ways in which we structured the book. And one, of course, is there is no crime, there is no evidence. And yes, there is an act of sedition. And here the artist becomes the terrorist. And I think the Kabir Kalamanch group is like an interesting point, flashback that long before this moment, you've really seen a community that has been hounded, criminalized, persecuted. They've survived this for much longer. And now again, three of the members of the Kabir Kalamanch are part of the BK-16 who continue to be in prison, who continue to suffer through the stigmatization of the arrests, and yet they continue to survive and speak and protest. 
So finally, speaking of solidarity, I think one of the really beautiful and also valuable things about the book is not only how it exposes these voices that are so often silenced, but it also models generally a really beautiful practice of what it means to be campaigning in solidarity with prisoners not speaking for people who are often represented as voiceless because they have been incarcerated behind walls, but rather talking with prisoners, showcasing their own writings in their own words, as well as, and unfortunately, we can't show this as we're listening to the podcast, but we'll put perhaps some pictures on the blogs, as well as objects that were dear and meaningful to the prisoners and those who loved them. The last hearing aids worn by Father Stan Swami, who died while incarcerated. The set of clothes that was made using the final paycheck of another man who's been incarcerated, which his family has said they will not wear until he is free. The flowers, Francesca, that you mentioned earlier that another incarcerated man used to buy for his wife on, on a weekly basis, a sign of his devotional love. And could we perhaps end now by both of you reading an excerpt from some of the writings of the political prisoners that are included in the book. So, Francesca, we'll go first in your reading. I'll read a small fragment taken by a collection of poems written by Varavara Rao between May 1974 and March 1977. The moon gets caught in the barbed wire over the prison walls, and we, after singing and discoursing, lost ourselves in the dreams of revolution. There is this one poem that Ramesh Kaicho writes. It's called My Dear Mosquito Net. One of the things about the brutality of what happened inside the prison is that so many of these prisoners who were arrested were denied what was fundamentally basic to them. In the case of Dr. Stan Swami, he was used to provide someone who was suffering from Parkinson's. He was refused. They refused to give him the straw. They didn't give him the hearing aids. One of the other things that they did with a lot of prisoners is that deny them of mosquito nets. This was done to Dr. Navlaka, Sigitavale, also Ramesh Kaichor. And Ramesh Kachur describes this in the moment when he's at a mosquito net and the mosquito net in a prison is, is such a valuable thing. And 10 or 12 police officers rush into his room and they demand him, they say, how long have you had this? Do you have a court order to have this? And this is a security threat. And Ramesh Kachur says, but how can a mosquito net be a security threat? And then, of course, they take it away from him. I'm just going to read some fragments from that. It says, my dear mosquito net, you are very dear to me. So much so that I can't explain, trapped in this scary, uncomfortable prison, sleeping in your embrace, made me feel better. I saw a lot of dreams because of you. Dreams to live in this hellish environment. Dream that gave support. Dream that gave me humanity. Dream that gave me inspiring optimism. Of Pule Ambedkar. Dreams that said Bhagat Singh, Sukhdevan, Rajput. And it goes on and on. And then he says, Dear Mosquito Net, now you are not with me. You've been forcibly taken away from me by some enforcers, on the orders of their cold-hearted masters, ignoring all my requests, flouting the rules of the jail manual. Mostly, this is a love letter to a mosquito net. He says, when you were by my side, I slept peacefully, but now I stay awake, disturbed and restless. And the person who is restless, disturbed and cis, is the one who is always fighting for his rights. The officer who snatched away from me would not be aware of this. So, yeah. That was Can really I... one of my favorites. Yes, go ahead, Francesca. Sorry, just wanted to say that I think it's important for the audience that the letters are were not originally in English. So I think that's also something quite unique about the book that have all been translated with permission. And so this is all original and unpublished material that is accessible in English for the first time. How long can the moon be caged? That's uh, really important. Yeah, thank you. Dr. Teldumpe, did you want to end with some thoughts? I think something on a mosquito net. Let me explain because it happened and I have gone to court because of that, which is still pending. And it could be pending and it might die still there. In my particular case, we have the mosquito net was given by the jail itself. And in jail, it's such an autocratic rule of the superintendent. The person comes and his rule actually prevents. The new fellow came and just here taken away on the mosquito net. Mine was paid for quite many days and thereafter they took it away. And I had to go to the situation is such that area, the larger jail, is actually declared by who? WHO as a mosquito prone, malaria prone area. And there anything has happened, general, and this is the more biggest risk that you incur in jail that 
if you really fall sick, you will, there is no guarantee that you will be taken away to the better oxide. If, yes. if it is a fancy param malaria, people could die. Okay. There will not be any medical infrastructure to detain the His rule, this, the single person's rule, is followed in the jail. And for a silly thing also, you have to go to court and seek an order. Because of that, I then I filed a kind of complaint in the court law. The jail sessions court and it's still pending there. Nothing is there. They just disposed saying that no, this or that, and all that. So you don't hear anything about it. And then you have to, because all your requests would be rejected in the session court, you have to go to high court. That's a constitutional court. And then high court also, it's a, you just keep your fingers crossed and probably seek, you can take a mosquito net to Supreme Court. This is the way the things go on here. There would be so many tens of petitions, probably dozens of petitions from our group itself pending in the court, which would die still death. I'm so glad you brought that forward because it's unfathomable to people outside that system that you would extract pain and punishment and energy for the simplest request. But this labyrinthine system of punishment at every level is astounding, which makes your books so much more important, right, to show how people not only survive, but survive in ways in which they're making these incredible connections through art and poetry and through their daily objects to communicate. Just thank you so much. There's so much more that we could have talked about with this beautiful, rich book. And from you, Professor Teltumde, your life is a book. There is so much that we didn't get to, including, I think, Importantly, the use of medical neglect as a pervasive form of hands-off torture, which is another theme running through your book, the use of the process as itself being the punishment. And we've really just nicked the tip of the iceberg of this profound, rich capturing of the violences that are being inflicted through the Indian legal carceral system. So profound thanks to all of you for being here with us and for shining this light on a regime which disturbingly is being so internationally whitewashed in the name of bigger geopolitics. So thank you again. If I might add, it's just an incredible honor to have written this book with Francesca, but also have Dr. Teltumde here because uh, I don't think he realizes the intellectual impact he's had on narrations and generations because I first read his essays on Economic and Political Weekly. I started reading them as a young person and then his Republic of Caste is just remarkable. He's quoted extensively in this book and a lot of the things he talks about uncivil society, he's gone through the ordeal, but I don't think he realizes, maybe he does, but the intellectual debt all of us owe for the body of work he's published over many decades and continues to. And of course, David, the work that you do, which again is remarkable. Just I'm just so glad that I happen to be in community and in conversation with all of you. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.